Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 64. I'm Joshua Klein. And I'm Mike Updegraff. And we have a few different things going on. We have uh, actually a lot of different things a going on. Of Tons things. of different things. Uh, the last uh, series we've been going through in the, the podcast uh, has been, we went through uh, David Pye's The Nature and Art of Workmanship. We had many episodes about that. But we went back and looked to see, you know, the last time we had any kind of updates or things on what we've been up to. Yeah. And it's, it's been it's a been long... It's been like half a year. Yeah, like half a year. So uh, we've, we're in this uh, fruitful season of work. We've been so busy, head down, just plowing forward, you know, so busy with so many different things. Um, and we've just been reflecting in that. We've been yeah. thinking about uh, all the work we've been doing. We've got a new book out that we were, uh, is at the printer currently called Greenwood Spoon Carving uh, by our friend Emmett Van Dreisch. It is the absolute best book on spoon carving we've ever read. It is. And I can say that not because it's our book, but because he first self-published it. Mm. Um, And it was print on demand, and he said, I just couldn't, you know, whatever. So we said, all right, we got to get this book out as far as we can get it. So we we were so impressed with the book that uh, we talked with him about publishing it. So that's now available uh, in our store, Greenwood Spoon Carving. It's a, you know it's a pre-order, of course. It's it's at the printer, but it's going to be shipping out real soon. Actually, yeah, I think actually, yeah, it's uh, coming up. It's we around the corner. Be getting that notification sometime, anytime. Yeah, that's going to be great. Uh, yeah, when we held a copy of the of that book that Emmett had um, self-published and did print on demand, we said this is beautiful. I mean, mm-hmm. it is an amazingly beautiful book. Yeah, and uh, just packed with content. Yeah, tons of really fascinating uh, insights. And uh, Emmett is, I think, one of the best spoon carvers alive. Yeah. Um, and spoon carving is at its height, I would say. Mm-hmm. There are cool old spoons, but in terms of, um, you know, real focus on spoon carving to a degree of excellence that has never been done before, right. spoon carvers have. Yep. really been doing We're amazing things right and Emmett is at the front lines of that he's really pushing uh, design and uh, execution of uh, exemplary workmanship to a, yep. an extreme degree so yeah the other thing about Emmett is that he's so uh, not just willing but enthusiastic about sharing all he knows yep. you know he's not holding back some trade secrets so that he can have something in his pocket to you know so he can sell stuff or whatever he's he wants to teach everyone how to carve a spoon and to how to really enjoy the process. So I think this book hits the nail on the head. Yep. And also we're working on issue 15, which will be to the printer shortly. We have, uh, we've been, all the articles are done. We're in the design phase, uh, working out, you know, kinks here and there with a few things. Tracking down photos. Yep. All kinds so, of stuff. Yeah. Issue 15 is well underway. We're, we're far into it. And it's going off to the printer in really only a few weeks. So right after you get your uh, spoon carving book in the mail, mm-hmm. issue 15 will be right behind. Yeah. So yeah, keep your mailbox free and clear and ready to uh, await the arrival of those <laughs> Don't let those it pile things. up. Yeah, don't let you it gotta, pile up. You got to leave room. Don't let the postal carrier leave it out in the rain. No. That's the other thing. That's like a pet peeve. Yeah. You leave it out in the rain. Um, so... Today, as Joshua said, we want to discuss this idea of uh, fruitful seasons of work. Uh, it seems that, especially in the, um, the higher latitudes, that when you have real seasonality with weather, you have a real seasonality with work. 
Mm -hmm. um, that there are certain things that can only take place some months of the year and certain things that only take place in others. And so around here, we get a nice long winter, which slows things down for us, right? Mm -hmm. And we, we have a different kind so of work. it's so welcome. Yes, it is, it is lovely. Uh, but right now, the sun's been shining and we've been making hay <laughs> as much as you can because you got to get the hay in the barn before. And actually, yes, that's part of what I've been comes, doing yeah, is been exactly. dealing with hay for my animals. So yes, so <laughs> hay in every sense. Um, since our last podcast, which was the last of the series of David Pye, we've been doing a few things. Mm -hmm. um, we've been working on the House by Hand project. Yep. So restoring the 1821 Cape. Yep. Uh, big old timber frame. Uh, restoring the joinery on that. Uh, so what was it? Beginning of April, I think we started yeah. on that uh, on the the restoration of the frame proper, and yep. we had our friend Nevin back with us. He was working, and our friend Will came out to work with us for about a week. Um, and we have just been focused on this particular project mm -hmm. um, and restoring the frame. And then, and then on June third, yep. so a little while ago, on June third, we had a huge party, mm -hmm. and we invited you know twenty five friends and family uh, to come over and help us raise the frame. So we had a big frame raising day and uh, put that whole thing up, got the frame standing. And Mike and I have since then been closing it in, working on building the dormer and mm -hmm. uh, and sheathing the roof and uh, working out endless amounts of details. Yeah, endless. That is probably not an exaggeration because there's, there's a lot that goes into this and thinking through how to lay out this house that we, you know, a lot of the thinking is completely backwards from how you build a house. <laughs> We're laying out rooms based on the trim we have. Yeah. So like in the upstairs, we're building this dormer, which was not part of the original house. And to locate the dormer, we're utilizing trim from the front hallway and the front set of stair, uh, the front staircase, which exists. It's, it's entirely <laughs> together, but we have to figure out exactly where that lands and then go back. Okay, so the handrail is this long and that ties into this stud, which is this wall for this room. Mm -hmm. Now, when we locate that, we can establish the dimensions of the dormer and the rooms within the dormer. Right. But we have to go and measure trim before we can do the rough carpentry. Yeah, exactly. So it, uh, you can imagine how maddening that process has been uh, because you just want to get framing. You want to get yeah. this thing up and, and then you want to get sheathing on, but you just, you find yourself, you know, digging through trim. And I was crawling up in the top of the, the storage uh container we have trying to find the handrail and i'm like okay it's uh 130 and whatever mm -hmm. we're trying to like measure all these little uh these nuanced uh numbers to be able to go back up to the frame lay it out and say okay so there's the last rafter yeah yeah and so i will say if anyone out there is thinking about doing a project like this uh when you take the structure down take lots of photos those lots have been of photos worth their weight in gold yeah it's been obvious it should be obvious so you should label everything yeah. and, and write it all down, draw little diagrams. But those labels but will get not erased even. sometimes. They will get <laughs> smudged or scrubbed or there will be, you know, a little drip of water that falls right on the one label that's absolutely vital. Mm -hmm. And you got to go back to the photos and you yep. can compare knots and funny checks in timbers yep. and say, that's that one. That's now that I crazy one with the big split on that side. Yep. yep. I can tell it from a mile away. Yeah, that's really important. So we've been doing that. Um, and also uh, the next step with this, uh, we're you know, closing in the last few roof sheathing boards, 
but uh, we have the chimney restoration, the, the reconstruction of the chimney, the central chimney with uh, three hearths, um, and then also a masonry heater that's going to be incorporated into that mass. So that has been an, in- an interesting thing to try to, well, first learn about and then figure out how to incorporate or um, how to collaborate, I should say, uh, the masonry heater and the, the hearths because they... For example, the masonry heater needs some space to swell and expand as it's re- receiving all this heat. Masonry heater has a small fire that's, that's fired inside of it and has a series of flues that it heats up the whole mass. It's a large mass, and it slowly radiates the heat out over time, over 24 hours, as opposed to, you know, if you have a cast iron wood stove, it's, it's hot when the fire's going, when the mm. fire's out. That's pretty much it. Um, but a masonry heater is is capturing that heat and slowly radiating out. So it's very different from a hearth, an open hearth. And so we've actually brought in um, a couple of people we're consulting with, and, and the guy who will be uh, doing the construction, he and a masonry heater specialist have been collaborating, putting their heads together to figure out the best way forward with it. So that's, that's the next step uh, with this project. But it's just been so much of... I just feel like I'm constantly... Uh, running around like a chicken with my head cut off. <laughs> like, you know, like I feel like, we, okay, we got this thing, got this sheathing. Oh, rain's coming. Yeah. So we got to get this sheathing <clears throat> undercover. Okay, we got to get this thing stopped, this installed. Okay, how much time do we have? Look at the radar. Let's get yeah. a tarp on this. Oh, no, Albie's calling, so I got to call him back yeah. and figure out the next. And it's just, this season is just nuts. Yeah. You're just running, running, running. But this is so much of what this project is. When you compare this time right now to January, yeah, we didn't touch the house in January. No, we were not even, I mean, thinking about it from time to time going, hmm, wonder how we're going to do that. But- yeah. yeah, it's then in the uh, when we were able to get out there and start working, you know, soon after the snow left, um, mm-hmm. pull those timbers out and actually look at them, actually assess and actually start doing repairs. Uh, the, the project really picked up steam. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you were saying, Joshua, like so much of this has been reacting or responding to conditions like we've had a really wet spring and early summer here. Mm-hmm. It's been uh, damp and foggy and and chilly and um but then uh as july wore on then all of a sudden we had this stretch of really hot weather and so we're up on the roof at that time and it's just funny yeah. how that works out um but we've been making good progress and moving ahead and it's uh we're, we're getting to the point i think where we're going to feel quite good about where it is for the winter yeah um obviously you're not moving in this winter. No. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Hate to break it to you. Yeah. You know that. You're not yeah. moving in this winter. Yeah. Uh, Everybody who has built their own house, who I've talked to, they've told me, uh, do not move into a construction site. Mm-hmm. Don't move in until you're done. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever that means, I guess. But uh, Yeah, you have to define done. Define done. Because who, who owns a house that is done? Yeah, right. I don't know. But uh, I think, obviously, you know, if you're doing plaster and you got all these you you got no trim on and you have this like this um crude basic the utilities are installed and Mm -hmm. you got insulation sticking out that's not the time to move in because you're moving into a construction site so that's that's what we're thinking about we're thinking about what we can reasonably accomplish by certain time periods specifically snowfall you know Mm -hmm. when it gets too cold but when we have the masonry heater inside the house 
uh, we will be able to heat the space and work throughout the winter. However, again, as we've been thinking about a lot, the seasonality of work, we're pushing really hard right now. Mm -hmm. We're pushing really hard to be able to get as much done as we can. Um, but we're not going to keep doing this through the winter. No, We're going to have to take a step back so that we have energy back in, in spring to be able to pick back up with this new life, this new season of, okay, now what do we do? And I think that is just the way that the world is. Mm -hmm. It's just the way that we that's are. That's the way we are. And that's the way that uh, seasons of work are and all sorts of things that if you, if you plow forward thinking, you know, I don't need a break, I don't need to stop, or I don't need to vary my work at all, I'm just going to keep push, 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 you'll burn out. Right. That's you, you won't be able to sustain that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is, it's very similar to, you know, what you experience when, you know, hand planing a board that has some, uh, let's say, variety to it, some mm -hmm. knots, you know, if you just are just gonna, you don't care, you're just gonna go at it and um, push, push, push in the same direction and ignore all the messages you're getting from it. <laughs> uh, it's not going to work out well. Uh, I feel like, um, you know, machines often invite that, that mm -hmm. you just feed the board in and then out it comes. You get, you know, input A gives output B and it's, you know, you, you come to predict that, but humans are not like that. Yeah. Um, we can't just, and, and wood is not like that, honestly, either. Um, in order to understand it, in order to, to have that kind of relationship with it that you need when you're using hand tools, uh, you've got to slow down. You've got to take note of where it gives you a, a check or a pause and um, pay attention there. Mm -hmm. So I've been reading this interesting book um, called Metaphors We Live By. Uh, it's written by uh, two guys, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson. It was written actually back in 1980. That was a good year. Uh, was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, Mike was born in 1980. Yeah, you all knew that, yeah. right? Okay. Um, and so uh, I, I've been reading this book, Metaphors We Live By, and it's a fascinating book that has really um, – it has a lot of staying power. It's really maintain, maintained its integrity because what these authors are arguing is something that's um, that really rings true. That um, it argues that metaphor is it's, it's fundamental to the way we think about things. Hmm. So when we have these conceptual ideas, things in our brain, we understand say what an argument is. Mm -hmm. That's a concept, right? Yeah. An argument. That's a concept. Well, the way that we understand what an argument even is, is through some sort of metaphor. Mm -hmm. So, for example, for example, we think about uh, war as a metaphor for argument, that we're in a war. So we talk about an argument being indefensible. Mm -hmm. You know, that's an, that's an your argument yeah, is that's indefensible. A, that's a fortress right. sort of thing with walls that are crumbling or that's in a bad position. Right. You don't it, have any means of defense. But... An argument that is is uh, good. See, I'm even trying to find it, not yeah. find a metaphorical word. Yeah. An argument that is good is something that is right on target. Mm -hmm. But yeah. you don't want to shoot down those arguments <laughs> because you can't, right? That's so you right. shoot shoot down. Uh, you have right on target. You have this. Um, this you can gain uh, ground in an argument. You can lose ground in an mm -hmm. argument. So the way that we conceive of, we understand argument is in terms of war. Yeah. Now, it's not saying it is the same thing as war. It's it's saying the way that we even understand this abstract concept, you know, we're calling argument, 
is through this experience of physical warfare. Yeah. So what that's doing is it's teaching us uh, we're talking about it like that because we have those physical experiences. Even if we, ha- I haven't been to war, but I've learned about war. And so the way that I think about argument is shaped by the way my culture talks about argument. Mm-hmm. So I think of uh, I think of these things in these terms. Or we think about time as money. That's the other one that right, they bring right, up right. quite a bit. Yep. So we waste time mm-hmm. as if time is like a, a physical stuff. You have yep. some of it in your pocket in your wallet yeah right and you waste time if if you're not uh, working efficiently enough right which is which is to say that uh you have some control over whether or not time is being spent right i'm pretty sure that there's one second per second going by whether i'm awake or asleep right but we talk about it as if it is something to spend right and, mm-hmm. you know, that that's a very real thing. Like when you have you money, spend you spend time. it wisely, right? right? When you have time, you should spend it wisely. And you never have enough time. No, nope, right. So, so having like enough, <laughs> it's like it's a thing. And so you think about how can I save time mm-hmm. with, you know, time-saving devices, right? Yeah. So that's a, that whole way of thinking about the succession of moments, that whole way of thinking about it is fundamentally metaphorical. Mm-hmm. It's it's describing the metaphor that you have this commodity, this money, this stuff in your pocket that you have to invest wisely. Yeah. Invest your time wisely, right? Yeah. Yeah, time's another interesting one because we really have absolutely no way to uh to decipher to figure it out outside of analogy or metaphor, right? There's right. like it's a journey, so we talk about the passage of time. It's a river, so the flow of time. Like right. it's something moving but we can't pin it down. We can't really understand what's going on with it. Right. And even that right there is a, is a metaphor. Pin it down. You pin it down. Yeah. So you have an idea you're trying to communicate. And when you're trying to con- conceive of it, even that's yeah. a metaphor. It's like constantly. And that's the argument of this book, is that the way we even think about things is all inherently metaphorical. Mm-hmm. So what is the point of that? The point is that our our um, metaphors that we use to talk about life and ideas and concepts, it shapes the way we think about them. Mm. Uh, So when you think about, say, if I think about argument, my culture teaches me, of course, that uh, argument is like warfare. Okay, so now I don't want to use indefensible arguments and I want to shoot down my opponent's arguments. So if I'm having dialogue with somebody and there's a disagreement, Immediately, my whole way of thinking about this sort of scenario I find myself in, now I have an opponent. Yes. I have an enemy. You're on and the so defensive. I'm, I'm on the defensive, yeah. and I'm posturing to be able to you know, engage in lines of attack. And so that is the way that I then act, because those are the dominant governing metaphors by which I even think about what's going on between mm-hmm. us right now, right? And so that is really significant, because when you're thinking about uh, life and work, we have these dominant metaphors that we use, that we talk about our work, and we talk about what we're doing, and they shape the way we think about it, and then they shape the way we act, and they can completely uh, steer us in a direction that may not actually reflect reality, hmm. i.e., we may have bad metaphors governing our thinking. Um, and so they they govern our perception of the world, and uh when we think of ourselves uh, in in different terms, so when we think about ourselves, if we don't think of our work in terms of fruitfulness, right? We don't think of ourselves as, 
creatures, embodied creatures who, Mm -hmm. you know, if we think of ourselves actually as machines, which is the dominant metaphor in our culture for work, we are going down a way, uh, a path, see a path, see, we're going down a path that is so off course. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not trying. Yeah. Off course from reality (laughs) that it's just, it doesn't match our our daily experience because we are not machines. Yeah. So, there, there came a time in the course of history somewhere in the Industrial Revolution when we started looking to machines to show us what is good in work, what is efficient in work. When we see you know, like the, the cogs, right, working together, it's like you look at a process of people and you say that's like a well-oiled machine because the machine is held up as the ideal. At mm-hmm. some point that happened. Mm-hmm. Before that, machines were like we see um, a lot of this digital technology now, it's kind of, there's there are things out there that are stupid and clunky and we laugh at them because we're like, ha ha ha, they think AI will be able to take over for like real skilled writers. Well, that's stupid because look at what AI comes up with. Well, in a few years, it's, or less, it's going to be way better than most humans could ever write, mm-hmm. right? So there was a time when machines were just stupid, clunky, loud, and broke down all the time. So we did not hold them up as excellent, you know, the the ideal um, like picture or metaphor for work. But there came a shift when all of a sudden, yes, so machines are predictable, they're reliable, they're working, and that is what we looked to, to... Um, even our human labors became described with the metaphor of machines. Yeah, and so we, 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 when we talk about our work, we talk about uh, exerting physical energy and doing work, we talk about cranking it out. Mm-hmm. Or when we're, when we're tired, yeah. after a long day of work, we've run out of steam. Yeah. We need to recharge, we need to refuel, Yeah. right? Or, or, you know, like when someone's really working hard and they're really, you know, quite productive, we say, oh, man, he's a machine. Right. We mean this guy, I can't even think of it outside of metaphors, but he is a very uh, productive, efficient worker, mm-hmm. right? This guy's a machine as the way that people talk about it. But here's the flaw with that. There, there's always a grain of truth in any metaphor, mm-hmm. right? There's always some degree of comparison. You can say, well, in the sense, it, it we can... He's a machine in the sense that he just appears to be um, unflinchingly moving forward and working, mm-hmm. working, working. He's unstoppable. Okay, fair enough. That analogy, that metaphor only goes so far, though, because the the problem is that this is zero-sum thought process. This means when you, when you give a certain amount of energy, you have now lost that energy. Mm-hmm. You are depleted. So you had some... You gave it away, and now you are less as a result of having worked. And so you have to go fuel up. You have to go. So you're thinking in terms of as if you're a machine. You're out of fuel. You got to go get some fuel to fuel up. But that is just not what it what it's like as a creature, mm-hmm. <laughs> as a as a human being. When you exercise, when yeah. you work, you're not worse off than when you began. Yeah, you're actually stronger. Yeah, I mean, you read accounts of so. If if anyone uh, listening has ever had the experience of running out of gas, you know for a fact that uh, your car can drive until it's out of fuel and then it is worthless. It will go no further. Um, you read accounts of, of humans doing things that 
appear supernatural, appear beyond the capacity of, of the human body to achieve. These accounts of survival or, um, you know, like trekking across Siberia and China as, as um, escaped prisoners from a war camp. And you have only what water you can find along the way and no shoes. And, but people survive and, and even go beyond surviving. They do what seems impossible. Um, because they are more than machines, right? There's, mm -hmm. there's part of them, whether you call it, you know, their spirit or their, uh, something inside them that drives them beyond what something assembled on an assembly line can do. Mm -hmm. Like your car can't just try harder. It's not like the little <laughs> engine who could, right? Yeah. Uh, who has something inside it that motivates it to push beyond its physical boundaries the yeah. fact that it has no gas in the tank the little engine that could is not a true story it is it is fiction it's hard <laughs> to believe i mean it is hard to believe that that is not real um i, I think shel silverstein wrote a poem about that and it was about this engine who couldn't right and it ended up a massive failure because it just crashed it thought it could but it couldn't wah, wah, wah. Yeah, it's too bad because it's it's limited it is a machine but we're not yeah right and so, so the, the thing that's relevant here, thinking about this in seasons of fruitfulness, seasons of work and fruitful seasons, um, what we're talking about is this is an important paradigm to be thinking in, I believe. Uh, because if we think of ourselves in terms of machines, then seasons are meaningless. There mm -hmm. are no seasons. Yeah. Because you're a machine. You just, you know, you, you fuel up, you go until you run out of fuel mm -hmm. or you replace some bearings or whatever and you just yeah. go. And that, that's exactly what we do with our, we now have 24 hour work cycles and, and in a city it's as bright at nighttime as it is during the day. We've mm -hmm. tried to erase those physical limitations by creating an artificial uh, mechanized environment, mm -hmm. right? That removes those cycles. Right, and machines are efficient only in the economic sense. Yeah. They don't need healthcare coverage. Yeah. Right? right. They they cost less money to run than paying somebody mm -hmm. a living wage to be able to take right. care of their family. Right. Um, and so they they are efficient in the economic sense, but machines break down. They mm -hmm. wear out and people don't. Right. They can be tired. Mm -hmm. They may need to heal. You may overwork a person, all yep. of which shouldn't happen. But people fundamentally don't wear out and wear away they can be um when when someone is stewarding their body they're exercising they're right. actually strengthening themselves and so the problem comes when there is a there is work going on that when you're pushing yourself too hard and you're you know damaging your body because you're not uh, paying attention to your yeah. work that's where you start feeling the the uh, the metaphor of machine pretty keenly you're saying yeah. i've just you know, wore out my bearings. I'm totally right. exhausted. I'm just yeah. done. Um, that's where you, you're you're not uh, tuned into the way that uh, we actually do work. Yeah, because uh, I mean, if you think about it, like the the car analogy. Let's say you have a a classic 1960s Ferrari, right? And you want to maintain that pristine condition. So, what some people would do is they'd say, "Okay, I'm going to build a, a glass house. I'm going to put that Ferrari in there." I'm not going to touch it, right? Like it's going to stay there. It's going to be pristine. Um, so a few things happen there. First of all, 
uh, stuff does break down in an engine, you start to lose your seals and things like that. So that Ferrari is not gonna be really in great condition to drive again without a good bit of work. It'll look nice, but its purpose is not being fulfilled. And that is to like, you know, howl around a racetrack or something and, you know, actually drive down the road. It's, it's a vehicle, it's not an art piece, um, so to speak. It's beautiful, but it's meant to drive. But if you take a human being and say, I'm going to maintain like some, let's say you're at the, the peak of health in your 20s. Let's say you think back on how great you felt in your 20s or look ahead to how great you hope to feel in your 20s. You say, I'm going to maintain this forever. So I'm just going to sit and do nothing. Yeah, quick. Don't do Don't anything. do anything because I don't want to wear out. I don't want to hurt. <laughs> you know, I'm never going to go for a run because I don't want to wear down my knees. I'm never going to do this or that because I don't want to, you know, like the sun, I don't want damage on my skin. I don't want to do this. So I'm just going to, just going to stay in yep. and not go anywhere because I will prevent wear and tear on my body. So you just sit on a sofa and let's see what happens to the human being after, you know, six months of that or a year of that or five years of that. You are not in the same condition than when you went in. And I can guarantee your condition is not has not improved at all. Right. And so when you think about the, um, the, the, the fitness world and being able to exercise, this is just such a basic thing. So if you, if you jump into the fitness mentality, you go to the fitness world and you say, all right, exercises, this is obvious. We all know that you got to work out. You got to keep your body exercised uh-huh. to keep strong and fit. But somehow we immediately go to work and we think, okay, so now the goal is to exert as little physical energy right. as possible because yeah. that's going to be the way I can conserve my energy yeah. and conserve my body, yeah. which is absolutely insane because it's the exact opposite move from physical fitness world. Yeah, or you know the way some people think of like doing stock prep with hand tools as like masochism, right? But they'll still drive to the gym to go and pound out on a spin bike for an hour, right? It just... There, there's a real disconnect there between, um, you know, doing physical things that actually achieve a creative result and you want to go and do quantifiable physical things so that you can measure your fitness results, mm-hmm. right? Rather than just going to your shop and doing a bunch of rip sawing and hand, hand planing and you work up a sweat and you actually make something at the same time. Mm-hmm. But we've we've so compartmentalized these things in our life that, no, 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 that's work, and I want to minimize that, but I'll go over here and work and waste all that energy just spinning a, uh, the, the wheel of a stationary bike. But I, I think it's not even just physical work. You're emphasizing the physical side of it, and I, I think I've been too, but it's also true for mental work. Hmm. You send some kid to college, mm-hmm. and we're not worried he's going to break his brain. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right? Right. It's too much. Yeah, it's too much. I'm just too tired i can't think anymore and therefore wow you just went way too hard and now you're not going to be able to think anymore mm-hmm. way to go yeah you just you've wrecked put, that you've topped up his hard drive there's no more room you got to <laughs> delete some stuff yeah it so, doesn't work yeah it, that's not how it works we know that we go to school we read books that are over our head we uh we learn you know c- complicated uh, mathematics. We learn all these things that we didn't already know because we're exercising our our mental and intellectual capacities so that we can understand. Mm-hmm. A- and this is obvious when we're looking at our kids going to school, but it doesn't end. 
Mm-hmm. It's not that we, now that we're adults, we don't have to do that. So now we can stop reading books that are hard for us and stop physically exercising because right. we've we've hit our peak and now it's all downhill from here. Yeah. Since when? Yeah. Since when? That's actually how you maintain is by exercising yeah. and jogging. And it's... That's, yeah. All the studies and all the research show that, that being physically active, being mentally active, reading things that stretch you, that's how you live in a way that, you know, everyone talks about how time is going so much faster and all this stuff. And like, oh, I can't believe how time is flying. Well, there are studies that show that having a diversity of experiences in your life actually means that you conceive of time going a little more slowly. Like you're not doing just the same identical thing over and over. You're keeping uh, keeping dynamic quality in your life, to borrow from Persig, right? You're keeping... Uh, things that are new and novel that your brain has to work on and you have to chew on. You don't just stay in the same patterns all the time. And so that and, and physically exerting your body regularly is how you keep it in good health. I.e. habit. Yeah. Not just, you know, a vacation once a year. Right. Where you yeah. go, you could do the one year annual hike mm-hmm. and then you sit yeah, for that's right. 364 the days. Annual hike. Yeah, that that would not be a good way of keeping the uh, you know the machine in tune, as as they say, right? <laughs> so what we're thinking, what we're talking about here is this metaphor, this machine metaphor, and we're saying, okay, that's not a good metaphor. It doesn't reflect reality, right? It doesn't actually even um, harmonize with the way that we experience the world. Well, what is a better metaphor? A better metaphor is something that is a, a more organic metaphor because trees are closer to what we are than a machine is. Mm -hmm. Um, And so every metaphor falls down at some point. Of course, in some ways we are not like trees, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but uh, the, 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 the metaphor of fruitfulness is a lot closer to the way that our, our work actually happens. So fruitfulness, you have this fruit tree and you plant the seed and there's labor um, applied to plant the seed um, the the tree sprouts and grows and becomes strong and fruit comes on these branches and within the fruit you have the seeds for the next trees right and so there's this exponential growth of mm. fruitfulness and this is a, a very strong I think uh, accurate metaphor for the way good work is right so you expend some labor you do something and it grows and blossoms and bears fruit that will be exponential. It'll mm-hmm. add, it'll scatter seeds further and further, so more and more good things can happen. See, machines can't do that. Right. They have a task. They accomplish the task, and they shut down. Right. Or they are assigned the next task. There's no um, there's no vitality. There's no fruitfulness. There's no uh, going forward and spreading around. And so we've been thinking about that with. Uh, about that for our work and the fruitfulness aspect. How can we be fruitful in what we're doing? I.e., how can it be more than just accomplishing the task in front of me? How can it actually go forth in abundance and, and blessing beyond just the task? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing about human beings that is different than machines is that, you know, human beings make more little human beings. And we, that is... That is a very literal way of, of being fruitful. Like you, you're like an apple tree drops apples and let's say one little seed takes root and grows and you have another little apple tree, right? That's, that's, or you, um, 
you take last year's corn and you sow it, and then you have this year's corn from which you will harvest the seed for next year's corn. And so that's that's a different mindset than, than the machine mindset, which as you said, Joshua, you make for a specific purpose and it does that purpose. And it's not going to suddenly discover some new purpose for itself, mm-hmm. right? Um, like humans do. And it always, it always bugs me when people um, describe something like a tree as, wow, a tree is an efficient machine. A tree, like, it, you know what trees do? And then they list the things that trees do, mm-hmm. right? It's like you, you define something by the sum of the processes going mm-hmm. on in it, yeah. right? And we wouldn't do that with people. At least most of us wouldn't do that with people. Say, oh, people are so good at metabolizing food. You know, we're so good at at chewing and breaking down these proteins into things, which then we, like, we don't describe people like that. We describe people, you know, based on their personality or their lack of personality or, you know, some of these other things that, that come with relationship. Yeah. But we look at trees or things like that and we say, well, a tree is a very good and efficient um, machine for processing, you know, the carbon out of the air and oh, storing, and, and we just treat it like it's it's a little factory, right? <laughs> it's just a little thing doing its thing there, and I think we we miss a lot of what um, what actually is going on in the natural world when we take our machine mentality and we try and apply it there, mm-hmm. um, because there's so much that goes on, you know, when we as woodworkers you look at a tree and you go, well, I need wood. I'm going to cut down that tree and that's a loss, right? (laughs) But it's not really. There are more forests in America now than there were 150 years ago. Many more acres of forest now. It's not that we cut it down and it's gone forever. If we cut it down and we're stupid about it, we cause damage. But if we cut it down wisely we can actually make it better than it was before while doing creative stuff with it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that what we need to do with the environment is is to lock it away like that classic Ferrari and say, okay, here it is, and it'll be better now. Yeah, everybody just stay six stay feet away. away. Don't touch it. It actually won't be better, and we won't be better. Yeah. Like if we say we have to remove ourselves from it, and we have to leave it there, and don't touch it, and no influence, and... Uh, you know, we can't... No cultivation. No cultivation at all, right? Because we are are innately harmful to it. Mm-hmm. But we've always been in the environment. We we were... We've always existed within it as part of it. That um, is to say, we are at home in the world. Exactly. Right? And, and so now we're making ourselves homeless and taking ourselves out of the world because we think that somehow uh, we're doing a favor for for the world. And, uh, and we're really not. So thinking about this with the, the seasons of work and uh, just thinking about what we've been, what projects have been before us and we've been working on, I've been thinking about Emmett's book. Yeah. In this book, he had the seed of an idea, mm-hmm. this, this small idea saying, I want to make the book that I wish that I had as a spoon carver mm-hmm. when I had never carved a spoon before. I wish I had this book. And he had this idea. And he worked at this thing. For was it three, four yeah. years? It was a few years of writing and, and a few years of like designing, like this in germination, time, this cultivation, you know? and he's working on it and working on it. It's growing, but it's not seeing the light of day. 
it's not seen. Mm-hmm. No one else is seeing it. He's just working on it, and it's it's subterranean. You know, yeah. it's this it's, it's like this mycelium. cultivating. Yeah, right, it's just spreading below the surface. Yeah, and so what happens then? He you know he releases this book. He talks about it, and this thing sprouts forth, and this thing goes forward, and he's got life is beginning to show, mm-hmm. and there's response, and so he's able to see that this is this thing is alive. This thing is really running, yeah, and to be able to put the the um the book that he's been working on for three or four years into print is the fruit is the is the blossoming i should say of this whole uh work that he's been doing and now these branches are full and brimming with fruit and as we are able to go and reap the benefits of all of emmett's hard work we're able to take from that fruit and there are seeds laden within all of it. And so we can now take what he's done. He spent his life working on learning how to carve spoons to a degree of excellence that I will never achieve. Right. And now he's sharing it. He's sharing it. And so he has this amazing fruit. And now because of his work, I have that Uh amazing fruit that I can partake of and work on myself. And I can say, hey, have you seen this new book? Hey, let me show you how to carve spoons. Hey, it just gets spread around. Yeah. And so that is actually the way that this thing works. Yeah. It's not that Emmett, you know, completed his big task and now it's done and complete and we can stand back and look at it and go, there it is. It's that we're partaking of it and we're able to ingest and benefit from it so that we can spread those seeds of inspiration further. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just such an interesting thing. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny that uh, an event that happened, something that happened today kind of brought this to mind too. Um, I was here at the shop doing some editing stuff and I heard a noise outside and I went out and there, there are two guys back in the woods with a basket. I was like, what is going on there? And I said, hey, how's it going? So uh, the one guy had been jogging by and he noticed under the tree uh, a, a bunch of chanterelle mushrooms growing. And so he went... Um, he got his buddy and they came back and they were looking and, and picking some chanterelles. And I, I, I noted that's really interesting because, you know, they weren't there a day or two days ago, yeah. right? And so we've had this rain and the sun and the conditions um, are, are just right that this, all of a sudden we have all these fruiting bodies of the chanterelles, which have actually been there the whole time. You know, mm-hmm. the, the mycelium is there under the surface. It's waiting for those conditions. Um, but there are so many things in life that are like that, that, you know, if you have an idea to write a book or you have this thought, you want to do something, you're, you're just preparing yourself in your mind for it. You're taking notes and, and just thinking, um, but you're moving ahead with that idea. And then when the time comes, when something presents itself, when the conditions are just right, it can actually happen. And a lot of that is you know, when you see these things happen, when you see people who do things like, let's say Emmett's book, you say, Emmett, great job writing that book. That's awesome. It was years, yep. years of invisible work first. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so many other things are like that. Like we, um, uh, just this past weekend, we went down uh, to a town I'd never been to in Maine called Mercer, which is just outside of Rome, which is another town I've never been to. Which is right next to nowhere. Yeah, Exactly. Uh, I'm a beautiful rural area, but we went to a, um, uh, it's the main Japanese woodworkers festival. It's the first one, right? So it's a, a Kazero Kai event, which is, um, uh, it's like the shavings gathering, right? Where, where, 
uh, Japanese woodworking aficionados gather from around the world and they are, there are plane shaving competitions. Um, there are, there's like hewing, there are lectures and seminars. Like um, it's really, it's really an interesting thing. It's this, this worldwide phenomenon. But um, so Jason Fox, who um, hosted the event, uh, he uh, founded a, a group called Never Stop Building. Um, but he is, uh, he's trained in this Japanese woodworking and he's so enthusiastic. He has, uh, he's just psyched about this. And he bought this farm, this old rundown farm in Mercer, Maine. And um, he's now hosting this event. And this is the first first one mm -hmm. and hopefully many more to follow. But um, it's just interesting to see you you could look at this and call it this like the the fruits of his labors mm -hmm. for years. You know, he bought this farm two years ago and uh, they've just and moved in 10 days ago, just moved in 10 days ago. <laughs> and um, and the thing is, the place, it needs a lot of work. And yeah. so he's going to be working on this for years to come. But what he's going to do, what his plan is, is to use it not only, you know, he's not just fixing up his house, yeah. but he's going to use it to bring people in and people will hew timbers together and they will, they'll work on this place and, mm -hmm. and learn. And, um, it, yeah. And so he's, he's sharing the love of Japanese woodworking. Yeah. It's like sowing seeds mm -hmm. and it's not even the seeds of the work as some abstract thing separate from the relationships. He's sowing the seeds of these relationships through this work. And so when we were there, there were, you know, I don't know, I think there were like 80 or 90 people there or mm -hmm. something like that, a bunch of people around. And you could just see the uh, enthusiasm, the excitement, the sharing, the the partaking of the, the fruits of everybody else, that there's just this fruitfulness uh, within the whole uh, atmosphere there that was just so uh, exciting to see. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because, you know, thinking about metaphors, you know, some people would call what we observed all these really excited people sharing, right? And when they're when they're like that, other people get excited. Yeah. Okay. Even people who don't really know much about it would yeah. get excited. And so some people would describe that as infectious enthusiasm. <laughs> that that seems like a bad thing. That's a bad metaphor. Yep. Infectious. Mm -hmm. Now, okay, I get it. It's spreading. Yeah. <laughs> However, like a plague. Like. <laughs> okay. How about let's change the metaphor? Let's think about, about it as fruitful enthusiasm. There you go. Uh, enthusiasm that bears fruit and it has within it with, laden you know, these seeds of uh, further fruit going forward. Because mm -hmm. that's what I saw. I saw these people who had uh, no prior experience or little prior experience with Japanese woodworking pick up this die and say, how do you hold this thing? Uh -huh. And then someone who's more experienced say, let me show you. And they're they're coaching them through taking these plane shavings. And you can just see it. They're they're lit up. They're so excited. Yeah. And they're going to go, they went home, I'm sure. And they said, they, they maybe bought some, uh, some tools from the tool swap there, or they went home and did some research and bought some more. And now they're going forward, bearing fruit in their work on their own. And it was just such a, a great, beautiful picture of this, this sharing, this uh, partaking, that it just, uh, it's exponential. And good work is, I believe, inherently exponential. Mm. If work just completes the task and no one else knows, no one else benefits, it's not for anyone else, it's just you do a thing, that's it. Right. But good work is fruitful. Yeah. 
Yeah, I um, in in about a month, uh, we are going to be out in uh, the middle of the country. We're going to be out in uh, the the place where the corn is as high as an elephant's eye. Uh, out in <laughs> in Iowa for handworks. Are there elephants in Iowa? Yeah, I don't know. Somebody must have seen an elephant at some point, and then they they came up with that metaphor. Because <laughs> I don't know that there are really wild, you know, roaming elephants in Iowa okay. to get that. But yeah, there's uh, uh, handworks. Uh, handworks 2023. The last time that a handworks event was held in Iowa was 2017. Last time any handworks event was held. And so this is um, basically the largest gathering of hand tool woodworking aficionados in the world. And um, we're going to go out there and uh, bring a bunch of stuff but um, to, to sell magazines and books and videos. And we also just want to go and talk to people, yeah. and meet people. Um, we've heard from a number of, of folks, including some of our um, uh, apprenticeship students, other people we've we've talked to over the years who we've never met who are going to go to this thing. Yeah, and you should see the list of vendors that are going to be there. Yeah, it's so long. I mean, it's, it is just if you were to go to any woodworking event, yeah. save up for three years to go to one really special event, yeah. it would be Handworks. Yeah, it is so exciting to see all of this amazing knowledge and wisdom and experience all put into one place thousands of people thousands yeah, of thousands introverts of yeah <laughs> full of tools yeah full of enthusiasm sharing with yeah. one another and i you know i cannot imagine uh putting this thing on i know everyone is super grateful to the abrahams and uh benchcrafted and um lost art press and all those who are helping to put this thing on but to um what comes of that event mm. and what, what came of the 2017 event was people heading back to their homes just fired up. Yep. That, just absolutely um, excited about hand tools, about making things with their hands, mm. about learning new skills and new crafts and new trades. And so much information, so much knowledge uh, is exchanged at that event. And so... Um, we're kind of thinking of it like that. Like it's just planting, planting seeds, planting you know, seeds, yeah. of all the, you know, Iowa is a great place to go to plant seeds, I guess. <laughs> and, you know, but, um, <clears throat> but yeah, so we, we're really excited about that, about going out there and, um, and seeing what, what little bit we can do in, uh, helping to spread, uh, this enthusiasm and all about, uh, working with your hands and uh, making beautiful things, learning new skills. So. Yeah. I mean, I think we talked about that with the apprenticeship program. We talked about cultivating craft, you know, and yes. this idea yeah. of um, of letting that not fester, not be an infectious enthusiasm, but let it cultivate, let, mm -hmm. it, um, let it come to blossom, to be uh, enjoyed by, uh, by everybody. Yeah. Um, so I think I really do think that it is, especially reading this book, which you should read, Metaphors We Live By, it's so fascinating because as you begin to talk with someone, all of a sudden you realize that metaphors are falling out of your mouth. Oh, wait, that's a metaphor. Falling out of your <laughs> mouth left and right. And you realize the way I think about the world is shaped by the words I use. Mm -hmm. And so you know, I've been thinking about that. You know, What are the metaphors that I use for my work? Mm. I think it's a good question to ask to be 
thinking carefully because what you think, the way you talk, the way you conceive of your work and what you do and how you live, it shapes the yeah. way you act. Yeah. And if you treat yourself, if you treat your shop time like factory productivity, I'm a machine, it's going to come to a dead end. Mm-hmm. It's going to be... It's going to follow the inevitable route of the machine. Yep. And you're going to be thinking, well, okay, how can I conserve? How can I expedite work? How can I uh, remove myself from this dehumanizing process as much as possible? Mm-hmm. But what if we thought of it as a garden? The workshop is a garden instead of a factory. Yeah. What if we are uh, there to cultivate? Uh, so I would encourage you as a listener to think about that. What, in t- what metaphors are you are you choosing to use to describe your work? You know, and what metaphors might you intentionally choose otherwise? You know, how can you think about uh, aiming your metaphors to fruitfulness as opposed to uh, mechanical efficiency that comes to its own end? Yeah. Uh, yeah, these are, these are great things to be thinking about. And um, I know uh, sometimes if you think of your work as a slog, you know, rather than a joy, it just is a slog. But um, if you approach it with a sense of, uh, you know, you get, you have the gift of doing this thing in this time, whatever the work is, you know, we all only have so long on this planet, you know, Mm -hmm. we only have so many breaths to take, really. Um, But anything that we get to do is uh, something that we can find enjoyment in and look forward to doing. And so it's super important to to think about these things uh, rightly or in a way that um, that really shows the value of doing them. So uh, thank you for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any comments or questions, uh, just leave them below. Uh, we always like reviews, especially the positive ones. And the funny ones. The funny and positive. Re- so if you if you want to leave a funny, positive review, we'd really appreciate that. Um, so yeah, uh, keep making stuff, keep enjoying your work, and we'll catch you next time.